Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the National Security Advisor says India is among the top sources of foreign interference in Canada. Is India exerting improper influence on this government? Yasser Nakvi has joined the race to become the next leader of the Ontario Liberal Party. He joins us on the program to talk about his intentions for the race. And outrage continues to grow over Paul Bernardo's transfer to a medium security prison. How could something like this happen in the first place? All coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The Ottawa foreign interference uh, con- kerfuffle continues up in Ottawa. David Johnson's going to appear before the Parliamentary Committee, uh, give us his side of the story as to why he didn't think that we needed to have a full inquiry. Last week at that committee, a Vancouver MP, Jenny Kwan, briefed, uh, was, was briefed by Canada's spy agency. Uh, they told her that her advocacy work uh, for the human rights violations against uh, the Chinese government have made her a target of China. But uh, she says now that she feels the fight for global human rights is even more important with the anniversary of China's Tiananmen Square crackdown approaching. I hope that those of us outside of Hong Kong and China would find the courage to speak up and to let the people of Hong Kong know that we stand with them, that their voice, our voice is an extension of their voice. So that's the element of, of what's happening with Chinese involvement. Of course, that's been the focus of an awful lot of the attention and back and forth between the political parties. However, uh, yesterday, uh, Department of Trudeau's uh, security advisor, national security advisor, uh, made some uh, interesting comments, certainly about the Chinese interference that's been happening over the last little while. But uh, she also talked about uh, the other players that are involved in that. And uh, that's uh, what raised a few eyebrows. We're talking, of course, about Jody Thomas, who is uh, the Prime Minister's National Security Advisor. And she said some of the other players that Canada needs to be cognizant of include Russia, Iran, okay, check, check, and India. Now, that one raised a few eyebrows um, because, uh, well, are they allies? Are they? What's, we don't know what's going on here, but apparently they are a player uh, when it comes to the possibility of foreign interference. To get a read on what that exactly means, we're pleased to welcome back to the program Dr. Robert Hewish, an associate professor with the Department of International Development Studies at Dalhousie University. Professor, uh, thank you for the time. I know how busy you are, and we're going to explain to our listeners why you're so busy in just a couple of minutes. But was this a surprise to you that India was mentioned in that group? Well, yes and no, Bill, um, and and thanks for having me again for uh, for this conversation. Uh, see, India is one of many many democracies around the world that has had you know recorded uh, attempts of foreign interference within its own country. I mean, there's cases in the going back to the '60s and the '70s where the Soviet Union was was clearly labeled as uh, interfering in that country's uh, election processes. And, you know, democracy in India is really cherished. It's, it's like the the one thing that you don't mess with. So to hear that there's there's concerns uh, within India that some of their diaspora is, is maybe creating some foreign interference within their election system, I, I can kind of see where that's coming from. There's, there's that want to protect and preserve uh, the, the, the system in India. And there's been a lot of cases brought up in the especially the past uh, eight to ten years under president modi about the the threat of democracy being um, eroded in india but to see that india may be trying to interfere in other countries that is that's a bit of a a shock in a way because i 
I wouldn't imagine that that would go as deep as other countries have successfully pulled it off, including China, right? It's, it is a, I can just refer back to the fact that India is a democracy. So there is that value there um, where in Chinese government, uh, there's, you know, autocracy is, is the value. There, there's not that sort of respect for dialogue and understanding what people's voices are on the ground. It's sort of the party, the committee makes the decisions and away you go. So I would, I would, like to see a bit more of the details uh, about where this uh, accusation against India is coming from before saying, oh yeah, India is in that camp too. Whereas we've got some real perpetuators of foreign interference like like China and, and Iran uh, in the past. And again, India has got its own its own domestic problems with with foreign interference that it's, it's wrestling with. What about the idea that, and I'm talking about the, the geopolitical and economic, I guess, realities here too, uh, with India and, and for that matter with Canada. Uh, I mean, you know, India walks on both sides of the street here. I mean, you know, especially with the, the war in Ukraine right now, uh, they still buy oil from, uh, from, in, from Russia. They still buy arms from Russia because they've got their own internal problems that they're dealing with as well. So they're a player, but they're, they're, Hedging their bets, I guess, just a little bit because they they understand that they have to have some reliance on on, on Russian products at the same time, uh, and you've got the fact that I think it's pretty well known that that President Modi uh, is not a big fan of Prime Minister Trudeau, but I don't think it would be actually on a personal level that they would engage in something like this, would it? Well, it's it's again, it's hard to tell because within India itself. There's been a lot of concern over President Modi's actions uh, about maintaining that the healthy state of democracy in the country. There are journalists uh, and newspaper writers within India who have fled. They have uh, they've renounced their Indian citizenship. They're living abroad in other countries now because they themselves feel that they could be persecuted or they could be drawn into uh, some sort of a court uh, for just simply criticizing the Modi government. And there's been other cases uh, of that as well where we've seen that, uh, that Modi's government have, have shown outward aggression against Muslim communities and uh, and other parts and, and specific uh, areas of, of the country. I mean, even in the South, uh, in in the sort of the Tamil region, the, you know, Kerala and in the southern part of India, there there's not a lot of love and support for what what's going on in Delhi, and you you see that India is a really complicated country domestically when it comes to to politics, and what we're seeing, Mr. Modi uh, projecting here in terms of partnerships with Russia and keeping those economic ties going and still being an active member of the BRICS countries, so Brazil, uh, Russia, India, China, South Africa, that doesn't necessarily reflect the the barometer of what many people in India truly believe. And, and again, India diaspora is so wide so uh, so complicated that it's it would be uh, erroneous to say that uh, India is 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 in, you know as a whole supporting uh, what's going on with Russia and Ukraine. I think what we're seeing here is that Mr. Putin uh, wants to keep the oil market open to India and he wants to make sure that there's the ability for weaponry uh, from India to come back into into Russia if need be. Uh, they they basically to. They don't say it colloquially. They they use the same brand, right? It's it's Russian arms mm -hmm. that have gone into the Indian military that could now be sold back to Russia if they need to. 
But the relationship, again, between Canada and, and India has, I, I think you and I have talked about this in the past, it's been at times very acrimonious. And, and uh, if you go through this, and, and let's look at the from the other side of the looking glass for just a second here, uh, they could point to things like, uh, you know, what well, Canada is actually interfering in, in Indian affairs, you know, the, the separatist movement by some Sikhs, the Tamil Tigers, the, a number of different things, uh, the investigation into the, uh, the uh, Air India bombing from uh, Toronto to New Delhi, and on and on it goes. Uh, and they could, I think, make a case, whether it's valid or not, but that, that, that hey, get your nose out of our business. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's what we're going to, we're probably going to see more of that kind of conversation going forward because we've, we've now got this open discussion uh, about the role of interference. And now it's going to be, well, what actually constitutes interference? Who's, who's telling what to do to another country? And, you know, it, it's, it, these are perfect issues that you mentioned there, Bill, that, that there, there has been that pressure from from Canada on Delhi in the past, but uh, but going forward, it, it's going to be very delicate to see how that relationship unfolds, uh, especially as both countries will eventually lead into elections down the road. Uh, some of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's visits to India have not necessarily been the most popular. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of goading, a lot of uh, chuckles from within India press about uh, Trudeau's delegations over to India in the past. And it, again, it comes to this fact where sometimes governments aren't very good at reading the room when they're trying to either cozy up or to apply pressure on, on other other countries, be it allies or adversaries, and just not really getting the the internal dynamics there. And I, I think that's another part of the equation with, with interference more broadly. If we're seeing that in terms of what China's attempted to do in Canada in terms of reading the room and and what China's doing in other countries around the world as well. It just it seems like that that lack of respect for what goes on locally uh, is ultimately what gets this interference called out in the long run. It's amazing when now that the light seems to be shone more and more on on intelligence operations. And of course, we in all of these conversations, whether it's with uh, China, Russia, India, whose names guys come forward now too. Uh, we are remiss in the fact that we don't mention the fact that, hey, we're looking in on them, too. I mean, it's, it's a two-way street. Uh, and and uh, we, we, we have to, I guess, kind of back away from this idea that, well, we're doing it for good and they're not doing it for good. Uh, that it's, it's, it's a game that's played at the intelligence level and, and people get their toes stepped on a lot, don't they? They do. And I think what, where the, the red line is, where, where people say that is too far, is when there's a, that active disrespect for local opinions when there's when that sort of intelligence moves over into the realm of trying to undermine local processes that's that's too much and i mean what's really interesting now is we see that this week we had daniel uh, swidani who was who was from the solomon islands uh who who was visiting ottawa to try to tell his stories about how you know china basically was bullying 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 his country and he made a he made a stand he said no no in my uh in my uh, province in the solomon islands i'm going to say no to allowing chinese development in that in that province because he said he couldn't find the benefits for it uh he was seeing uh you know workers not getting paid unsafe work conditions there was just lots of literally bags of money just kind of floating around that didn't make a whole lot of sense and he said no it's Development itself is a tricky process, but at least, uh, you know, if the development's coming from Taiwan or Japan or the U.S., it's a bit more transparent. People are willing to sit down and talk about it, uh, where he he said, you know, th that uh, what was really uh, a problem for for him and his jurisdiction was that uh, in these, the, these these deals that were being signed with China, that there was no respect for 
what local conversations were about. And and as you know, Pacific Islanders are 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 famous for for these sort of long, prolonged dialogues and getting to know each other. You don't just do short visits when you're in the in the Pacific. You 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 sit and you listen and you you get to share. And he said that uh, that sort of culture wasn't there with China's development in his country, as he was telling folks in Ottawa this week, and that uh, when it came to the point of of China ultimately pushing and, and influencing opposition against him, that was that was too far. And that's why there was a, a protests and riots broke out in support of, of Mr. Swadani in, in the Solomon Islands, because that that process was just over the line. More to come on that, of course, and uh, there will be some ramifications, uh, especially with uh, the speeches that are being made uh, today about that. I, I want to change gears and, and switch hats for just a second, if I could. Okay, we got a couple of minutes left here. Uh, I mentioned off the top sure. that uh, that uh, Professor Hewish is, is uh, rather exhausted these days. Uh, you are also a volunteer firefighter in Nova Scotia, uh, and you've been busy, uh, as they all have. And uh, it, maybe you could just explain to our listeners uh, what you've seen, what you've had to do. I mean, I... I had the pleasure of visiting Halifax just a few years ago. It's one of the most beautiful parts of the country that, that was just lovely, but I, we can't imagine the devastation that, that you must experience and see on a daily basis. It's been a, it's been a rough week, Bill. Um, I mean, I was, uh, I, I went to the firegrounds on uh, uh, Sunday afternoon last week and uh, the call just came in that someone's deck was on fire. And uh, by the time that we, we got up there. Uh, it was uh, clearly a forest fire, and it was it was jumping the streets, and uh, it was going across the streets, and then starting to attack new houses. And then you know the the, the crews that were going in were wearing what we'd see you know it's called structural uh, personal protective equipment. And uh, within an hour, they were switching over to forestry gear because it was it was clearly a forest fire at that point. Uh, the heat of these things is almost inexplainable. Uh, you're you're looking at uh, you know, not just a campfire here, but when trees and forests are going up, you're talking temperatures that are in the, the over 1200 degrees Fahrenheit. So you're, you're watching houses start to take fire when, when there's no active flame against them. And it was really, it was, it was really difficult, uh, going through the neighborhoods. I mean, the first night there was a lot of work to try to save what could be saved. And I think the crews did a really great job of saying, this is going to be our defensive line and we're going to hold it. And and in many cases, we did. We we put a lot of work into to some key neighborhoods, and it, it worked out that way. But down the down the road, when the fire jumped over and and took into new neighborhoods before we could get there, the, the devastation was wild. And you know, there's there's a lot of factors that go into why this is. And one of the big things is not just the design of of these neighborhoods, but we are seeing very unusual weather in Nova Scotia. The fact mm-hmm. that it was so dry for the last two months. And those trees just kindled one after the other, one after the other. You know, some people say that, uh, well, this was a man-made uh, event and, and it looks like it was, but but don't underestimate just how important climate change is in sort of facilitating those accidents. I mean, if there's a stupid thing that causes a fire, uh, climate change will help spread the stupid. And now as a result, exactly. uh, we've, we, we've, got, uh, we've got hundreds of families that are out of homes and it's a province that uh, has struggles with housing to begin with. There aren't a lot of constructions and there's going to be a lot of work in the years ahead trying to rebuild these neighborhoods in, in Halifax. And this, and this should be a real litmus test for, for suburban uh, environments anywhere in the country, that if you're looking at forested suburban environments, this needs to be part of the equation. We need to be prepared. We need to have our trucks and our teams ready on the ground because when it overwhelms us, 
It really does. One of the things I'm sure you've experienced this, I remember talking to a couple of the volunteers from Fort McMurray's uh, tragic fires a couple of years ago. Uh, this guy was on site and and he was doing a, 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 actually a hit on global TV at the, at the time. And all of a sudden this, this wall behind the, the forest behind him, just all of a sudden the whole thing just went up. It's, it's not yeah. like this goes from tree to tree to tree. It's, it's, it's frightening how quickly it spreads, isn't it? It is. And I think we're, we'll see a lot of investigation into how the burn patterns worked around this fire in particular, because you could, you could have houses that were completely intact, no, nothing around them at all. And then as the, the forest fire fingers down a certain uh, pathway of, of fuel, it gets close to another structure and suddenly that structure is just engulfed in that heat and then it gets compromised and then up it goes. And uh, this is something that you know, planners and, and housing developers will need to pay attention to. I mean, the the the, the tragedy that we're seeing here is uh, is enormous for Halifax. And now it's becoming a battle within the insurance companies as well to say that, are they going to honor their their commitments? Uh, exactly. Right now, there's a state of emergency uh, in place that prohibited any new insurance policies from being sold within a 50 kilometer radius of this incident, both for, for automobiles and for homes. And that's that's not the normal playbook that we're used to. And no. uh, these events, if it's going to be floods or fires, are now part of the equation. And our municipal, provincial, and federal governments need to be ready for it. Um, it's Absolutely. something that we can't uh, ignore. And and the more information we get about seeing how these these tragedies were take, took place in the past, we can be better prepared in the future, I would hope. I hope so, too. Uh, more to come on this, of course, as uh, this continues, and now into Ontario and Quebec as well. Robert, stay healthy, stay well, and stay safe. And uh, we'll talk again a little bit down the road. But thank you so much for this today. Thank you very much, Bill. Always a pleasure. Take care. Dr. Robert Hewish from Dalhousie University and, of course, a volunteer firefighter battling the blazes in Nova Scotia. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but uh, the the increasing interest, I guess, right now in the Ontario Liberal leadership, of course, after the last election, as we all know, Stephen Del Duca stepped aside as leader, and uh, and, ran, and by the way, successfully became mayor of the city of Vaughan. But anyway, they are leaderless and and the only political party without a leader at this time, and uh, that's going to be changed. We're told later this year, uh, but a familiar face uh, has now entered the race officially. He is uh, Yasser Nakvi, who is a candidate for the leadership. He's a MP for Ottawa Centre and a former MPP and cabinet minister in a former government. And uh, he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about the candidacy and uh, what's going to be happening going forward. Uh, Yasser, pleasure to talk with you again. Thank you so much for the time today. Good morning, Bill. Thank you for having me back again. Let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your motivation. What made you decide to, to take this kind of a leap? Yeah, you know, this has been, uh, uh, th- I've taken some time to think uh, very much about making this decision. Uh, and and the reasons as to why I want uh, to seek the leadership of the Ontario Liberal Party. And as I was contemplating this uh, earlier in the year, I keep going back to the 10-year-old me. Uh, before coming to Canada, my parents were involved in pro-democracy movement in, in the country of my birth. Um, when I was 10, my father was thrown into jail for leading a pro-democracy march. And that has been a, a, a profound period in my in my life. And one of the lessons, Bill, I learned from my parents uh, is that real leaders step up, that they do not accept the status quo. They do the hard work to build a better future. And that's really has been the core reason as to why I'm in public service is, is that I do not accept the status quo and I'll I have always worked to make things better. 
And as I've traveled our, our province and spoken to thousands of uh, people, I keep hearing about people's struggles, how they are finding these times to be very challenging. Families are struggling to find a family doctor or nurse. Kids are struggling in overcrowded classrooms. Young people are working two or three jobs and still struggling to pay for their rent and groceries. And that, uh, that uh, a promise of Ontario that gave my family and, and I such a good life when we came to Canada 35 years ago, that promise is slipping away and I want to restore that promise. But the question, I guess, a lot of, well, first of all, liberals are going to ask, and, and certainly uh, if, in fact, you're successful, you know, the, the, the general population are going to be asking, is is why you? Uh, and you're, this is not your first rodeo, of course. As we mentioned, you were elected provincially. You served in cabinet uh, provincially. Uh, but that there's good news and bad news for that. You've, you've been around enough to know that uh, that what's going to happen here is they're going to say, hey, look, he's part of that old wind government. That's, that's you know, we booted those people out. Do you really want that again? You, you know that narrative and you know that's going to happen. How do you counter something like that? Well, I have experience and I think that's a good thing. I've, uh, uh, because of my hard work, because of my skill sets, because of my competency, um, I was given some really important cabinet positions like being the attorney general of Ontario. Uh, and that has allowed me to uh, be at the table and help make some really important decisions. Decision making is not simple or easy. It's not a matter of black or white. There's a lot of gray and it's about making choices. And I believe that I can use that experience for the betterment uh, of our province to challenge the status quo that has been created by Doug Ford, under which people are really, uh, really struggling. But Bill, here's the other good thing about experience is that you also learn from your mistakes. And I have done that. You know, I'm always reminded of when I'm when my children make any mistake. Of course, we talk about the mistake they have made. But most importantly, the conversation I have with them is what did you learn? How are you going to ensure that you don't make the same mistake again? And I bring that experience uh, as well, which can be used to not only transform the Ontario Liberal Party as a big tent party, as an inclusive party that is reflective of all Ontarians, but come up with practical solutions that will make people's lives easier to live. And I'm not one of these guys. You know- that's going to paint everybody the same brush. And I know your political opponents are always going to try to do that. You know, that the wind government was terrible. It, it, it wasn't. Uh, I mean, they did some very, uh, you know, important things and some very worthwhile things. Uh, they had some problems, some deficit problems. Mind you, the current government is, is outspending them now. So I guess they can throw that one out as a card they can play. But where do you go? I mean, we can talk about the past all we want. And I know that, that you know, the, the government in power right now wants to do that about how bad you were. Uh, but how do you fix what's going on now? I mean, you've just touched on four or five key areas right now. Education, first of all, healthcare that is always at the top of everybody's list. Uh, there's clearly a move here towards more private health care and more privately health, more private health care funded by the government's money. Uh, what, what, what would a, a premier actually do about that situation? Yeah, thank you. Thank you very much for raising that point, because it is about the future. And 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 I think we have to be quite mindful of the fact that the pandemic has been a, a, a very significant disruptor in our, in our life. And my big uh, uh, challenge with, with the premier, uh, with Doug Ford, is that um, he's essentially uh, using duct tape uh, to uh, on a leaky board and trying to get back to 2019, whereas 
we need to plan for next 10, 15, and 20 years. And that starts with healthcare. That is the number one issue that I continue to hear from, from people, um, how they are waiting 20 hours in, in emergency rooms. In rural communities, uh, Bill, as you probably know, as your listeners know, uh, emergency rooms now even close over the over the weekend, which is which has never happened in the past in our province. We have to start by ensuring that we are bringing more people into in our profession, whether they are doctors, they are nurses, or per, uh, personal support workers. We have a huge missed opportunity in in Ontario where you've got Canadian students who are going abroad to Australia, to Ireland, to England to get their medical degrees and then coming back. And it takes them five to six years to become a doctor or a nurse in our province or really well qualified immigrants who are doctors and nurses who are coming into Ontario and takes them almost a decade to become part of the profession. What a loss. What a missed opportunity. I want to ensure that we get these hardworking people, these well-qualified professionals practicing within our communities all across the province within a year. We have to be bold and ambitious to to help uh, solve uh, the problem the healthcare system is facing, especially when it comes to well-qualified healthcare professionals. Well, there's a long way to travel, as you well know. You've been down this road before. The uh, members are going to cast their ballots by ranked ballot. The first time they're going to have done that, November 25th and 26th. And uh, December 2nd, uh, we will uh, be finding out just who the new liberal leader is here in the province of Ontario. Uh, lots more time to talk about a number of key issues. Uh, yes, here. thank you so much for the time today, and uh, best of luck in your endeavors. Thank you, and I look forward to coming back on your show again. Thank you so much. Nasir Yakbi, now the official candidate, well, one of the official candidates uh, for the Ontario Liberal Party. Um, uh, Mrs. Sagamir, Bonnie Crombie, and others uh, have talked to talk, and they're doing their investigations, but uh, we'll see what happens uh, in the next couple of days. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I told her that as a former federal prosecutor and as a Canadian, uh, that I was profoundly uh, concerned and, again, shocked by this decision. Um, she assured me that she understood. Uh, she also assured me that uh, she was going to be reviewing the matter. It's Public Safety Minister Marco Medicino uh, speaking to reporters, uh, well, about the outrage uh, that is festering right now because of the decision and the announcement that was made that uh, that killer Paul Bernardo, convicted killer and rapist Paul Bernardo, has been transferred from maximum security of Millhaven to a medium security facility in both uh, in, in, in the province of Quebec. The families are upset. Uh, the lawyer for the families is upset. The Canadian public seems to be upset. We want to try to figure out just what's going on and how this process unfolds. And to do so, we are pleased to welcome back to the program Andrew Fujirelli, who is a lecturer at the Faculty of Law at the University of Toronto. Andrew, thank you so much on a busy day for uh, spending some time with us. First and foremost, uh, how does this process work? We just need to make a distinction here. Uh, this is not a, a, a political decision. This is a, a decision we're told made by a, a, an organization called the Correction Service of Canada, uh, which, as I understand it, is an arm's length organization. Is that right? Uh, it is. I mean, at the highest levels, they, they answer to uh, you know politicians, but but the day to day workings of the CSC or Correctional Services of Canada is, is done at arm's length. So this decision would be one that um, uh, a panel would d decide um, in consultation with Paul Bernardo's parole officer 
Um, and when I say parole officer, I, I don't mean that Paul Bernard is getting parole anytime soon. He isn't. Uh, but every inmate is assigned a parole officer who um, uh, uh, is assigned to that inmate to assist them with uh, issues that come up in the institution and their classification. So what would have happened here would have been the CSC would have decided that uh, uh, for whatever reason, this transfer uh, could take place or needed to take place. And, and Bill, we don't know why. The, the CSC does not release uh, decisions on classification. They don't do it for Bernardo. They don't do it for anybody. So we're, I think the public is in a little bit of a, an informational deficit here as to what factors went into this decision. Well, and you've heard the same outcry that I have. Uh, you know, they say, "Well, you know, this has got to be more transparency here. We have to have some understanding as to as to why this decision was made." Uh, apparently, from what you're telling us here, that's not going to be forthcoming at all. No, it won't be. Uh, uh, it would be a break with their policy with, with how they do things uh, in terms of uh, if they did it here. Um, and, and so there's a lot we don't know. There's factors on sort of both ends of it that, that we are in the dark on. There's factors on the, I'll call it the Bernardo side of things. What is it about him and how he's been in custody that has allowed them to come to this decision? Uh, but we're also at a bit of an informational deficit in, in terms of where he's going and what the status is there. Um, there are some medium security institutions that have maximum security wings. There are prisons in Ontario that have that. I don't know if the place in Quebec he's going to has a maximum security part. I also don't know what his freedoms, for lack of a better term, would be in whatever institution he's going into. It's just been completely silent uh, other than he's been transferred to a medium security institution in Quebec. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just looking at a quote here. We just played a clip, as you know, just before you uh, you joined us uh, from uh, uh, the, the public safety minister, Mendicino. Uh, and he actually further in that, that political scrum uh, th th talked about uh, that Canadians, he says, deserve a justification for Bernardo's relocation. This is absolutely an important question that needs to be answered. Uh, but from what you're telling me, that they don't have to and they probably won't. So, I mean, that sounds much uh, a statement that Manchichio made uh, much more in the political realm to try to turn the heat down just a little bit. He he has no say in this and, and they can simply say, you know, we're not we're not disclosing information. And, and pretty much that's the end of it, I guess. They can. Um, and and that would be the end of it. I would bet it it won't be um, oftentimes when you get outcries like this, when the outcry is so severe. Um, you would see potentially a reversal of that decision. It wouldn't surprise me if the decision got reversed because uh, of the outcry and and, and uh, the amount of attention it's gotten. They can always reverse their decision and then they don't have to give a reason for why they reversed the decision. And then they don't have to give a reason for why they made the decision in the first place. So that, that would surprise nobody in the criminal justice community if he was just sent right back to a maximum security institution. But um, public safety minister Mendicino, um, this is about as much as he can do. He can ask for an understanding from the CSC as to why the decision is made. Um, he, he can obtain a promise from them to, re to review the decision, which he seems to have got. Beyond that, his power uh, is limited. And, and that's just 
sort of the general practice we want of, of cabinet ministers not inserting themselves into the day-to-day operation of what is and should be an arm's-length institution. Yeah, and that's a worst-case scenario, you know, having politicians calling up and saying, hey, do this or don't do that. You don't want that happening in this process. But let me back up just a second, if I could, Andrew. How does this process get initiated? Is it at the behest of, of Bernardo's lawyers? Uh, is there somebody else that's looking at the file and say, well, wait a second, maybe he's been there long enough. Maybe we should do this. How, how, does, how does someone get the ball rolling here? So it would either come from um, uh, uh, Bernardo's parole officer as part of their normal course of working um, uh, and their normal job duties, or it would come from the correctional services uh, themselves, from the wardens, from uh, uh, the individuals who uh, 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 are, are take care of these institutions. It would not come from, from Bernardo's lawyer. Um, lawyers have a very limited role in correctional law. Um, they generally do not have rights uh, to appear at parole hearings. I've never heard of a lawyer ever being involved in a classification decision because one of the primary things that are involved in a classification decision is prison security, um, and, and they don't involve outside parties in that. Those are internal discussions that take place. So I would be shocked if it was uh, an advocate for Paul Bernardo who did this. That This would generally be a decision that would be internal to the CSC staff um, uh, at Millhaven, which is where he was, at the new institution in Quebec, um, and, and even at a higher level than that. I know there's been a, a great deal of information that has been forthcoming. A lot of it's from the trial. I, I covered that trial, as many other journalists did here in Ontario at the time. I, I talked to the, the French and Mahaffey families uh, when they were still looking for their girls. We talked at, after the trial. I, I, we we covered a lot of the bases here uh and it's a heinous disgusting act uh and there's questions here about about his then wife uh getting parole there's about how the uh, prosecution actually handled the case i mean as you know andrew for the it's, it's case history now does that factor at all into a decision to do something like this or do they say that was then this is now well with certain offenders bill um the nature of the act them itself will always play a role i mean it it, it always does to an extent but there are um, certain acts that take place where um, the heinousness of it, if, if I could use that term to pick up on what you said, um, it shows that somebody will never be in a position where they can be in society generally. And there are also certain offenses where um, the security risk is significant for the institution. So what Bernardo did and... Um, uh, uh, how that, um, I I wouldn't say it would be about how the the court process played out. That shouldn't have an impact on what happens with his parole, but, but the nature of his acts and how they reflect on his dangerousness, um, amongst other inmates or, and then amongst society as a whole will always be a factor. Uh, yeah, and and to, just to that point, I know we're just about out of time here. Uh, there were there were you know a number of occasions for the defense team in that particular case to challenge those, and and there were rebuttals, and and that's again that's uh, that's prologue, I guess, to what's going on. 
I'm glad you had some time to, to shed some light on this. I know a lot of people are upset, and justifiably so, uh, but we need to speak with some clarity here about what is going on, why, and, and what's going to happen going forward. As always, Andrew, thank you so much for this. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Talk to you later, Bill. You betcha. Andrew Fuggirelli from the University of Toronto uh, Faculty of Law. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.